He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. So which one is it? It's the question that I want to ask St. John with this vision of the church that he gets in Revelation chapter 7. He gives us a seemingly contradictory picture of the people of God. And so I want to ask him, which one is it, John? On the one hand, as he looks at the people of God gathered around the, the throne of the Lamb, what he sees is a numbered multitude. It's as though an accountant was given an end times audit, right? 144,000, sir, no more, no less, all accounted for. It's perfectly numbered. But then, just a moment later, John turns his gaze, and what does he see? He sees an unnumbered multitude that transcends every human boundary from every tribe and language and people and nation. He sees them all there defying every accounting that we might be able to offer. So we have a, a church that is both numbered and innumerable, and I want to know which one of those is it, because each part of that accents different things, brings out different emphases. There's different ways that we can look at or understand what it means to be the church with one or the other. But what John is bringing us to here is this paradoxical vision, which is a profound statement about the church. Indeed, Jesus himself is leading us to recognize this paradox about the people of God, that we are the numbered innumerable, or the innumerable numbered, whichever you prefer, both in heaven and on earth. And when we are able to have this kind of bifocal vision to see both sides of the people of God, we'll have a more robust picture of what it means to be the church and what our mission is in this age. But it's a natural kind of thing. We see this a lot with paradoxes in the scripture. It's a natural temptation to fall off on one side or the other, just to emphasize either the, the numbered part of it or the innumerable. So let's look at it and meditate more deeply on each of these different parts and aspects of the church and see how we can hold it together in that kind of bifocal vision. So I want to start with the latter half of the vision, first of all that innumerable side. So on the one hand, there's a, a temptation only to emphasize and to focus on that vision that John gets of the innumerable multitude. And to be honest, once you get that picture of the church, it's hard to want to move on beyond that. It's a beautiful image for what it means to be the people of God. There's a lot, been a lot of talk over the last couple of decades about globalization. And, you know, McDonald's and Starbucks, they're all trying to create this global culture. They used to call it the melting pot, right? Where everybody just, you know, we can have one world culture where we're all going to blend together and enjoy our lattes and our Big Macs or our Royale with cheese, as the case may be. But what John shows us is a way more potent and profound vision for what it means to be the people of God. He flips over the melting pot and he says, no, what it means to be the church is that we don't lose our, our difference. We don't lose what makes us unique, but it's that all of us keeping our unique cultures and languages and the tribes that now they are all one in Christ. In other words, he gets this picture of the people of God that transcends all those boundaries and all of those demographics, even while at the same time, we all remain our unique, distinct selves. 
It's a powerful picture of what it means to be the church. It's a global phenomenon, and not only global, but it transcends time and space. It's all throughout the world, and it's all throughout history. This is a picture of the perfect people of God. And once you get a glimpse of that, once you see what John sees here, it can be hard to let that go, to move beyond this picture of the people of God in all their perfection, in that heavenly presence of our Lord. It's natural, I think, to want to stay there, to hang out there. But it can also be dangerous if you are so captivated by a global, perfect vision of the church that you overlook or even denigrate the imperfect people whom God has actually given you in your own congregation. See, when we have such an ideal of what the church can and should be, we can start to look around at our own church and say, oh, I just got this group of people. You know, I wish that they were more devoted to Jesus. I wish that they were more sold out for the Lord. If only they did more. If only they were more. If only they were more like me. Mm. Then we would have a really good church. See, it can be dangerous to be so captivated by a vision of the perfect people of God and all of her splendor and all of her, her transcendence because you can lose sight of, you can overlook, you can even denigrate the very imperfect people in whom God has placed you. And I think few people had more of a, a keen insight into this than the great Lutheran pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And in our men's guild right now, we're reading his little book, Life Together. And in Life Together, he talks about some of the dangers of this. And I want to quote just from one particular uh, passage. He doesn't pull any punches here. He's a German, so you'd expect him to just come right at you, right? He says, God hates visionary dreaming. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. But listen to this. He says, because God has already laid the only foundation of our fellowship, because God has bound us together in one body with other Christians in Jesus Christ, long before we entered into common life with them, we enter into that common life not as demanders, but as thankful recipients. We don't complain of what God does not give us. We rather thank God for what he does give us. In this particular church, as flawed and as beautiful as it is, we see this particular instantiation of that perfect transcendent vision of the church. It's not other, it's both and. It is that innumerable multitude, but it's also this numbered group of saint-slash-sinners who are gathered together here on Sunday morning and throughout the week in our life together. And so we hold that tension. We keep that bifocal vision. Yes, the church is and will be that perfect, innumerable multitude, but it's also this particular group of people. 
But if there's a temptation on the one hand to just focus on that innumerable global side of the church, there can also be a temptation to go in the other direction, simply to focus on the numbered side of it. Although you might not understand why that is or be tempted as much, but it makes more sense when we get a grasp of what this 144,000 thing is all about. You wondered about that before? You read the book of Revelation, you see, it says 144,000 are in. At first you think, okay, that's a pretty big number. Like, I'd, I'd probably make it in there, you know, with a few to spare. I don't need to be in the, you know, 99th percentile, but so long as I'm in there somewhere. But then you start thinking, wait a second, there's 3 billion Christians on earth just right now. So now our odds, I, I'm not super good at math, but the odds start to not look quite so good. So what are we talking about with this numbered group of 144,000? Well, we've looked at this before, and when you read Revelation, you see it over and over again. John uses numbers in a very symbolic way. Remember last week, we talked about the 24 elders, which were symbolic of the 12 uh, tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, the Old Testament and the New Testament people of God. That 12 times 2 was the 24. In its own way, the 144,000 suggests something very similar. So again, you've got the 12, that number of the completeness of the people of God. And then 12 times 12, okay, that's your 144. I know, it's too early to be doing your times tables, but just bear with me. And then you have 1,000, the symbolic number of a great period or great multitude. Later in Revelation, there's the 1,000 years, which again is not a, a literal number, but a symbolic number for a long time, a great length of time. And so when you have 12 times 12, completion by completion, a very complete number, 144, times 1,000, that great number, 144,000, is symbolic of the great, vast multitude that comprises the full church, the full people of God throughout the ages. So then why give this specific number? Why give a particular number at all? Why not just stick with the innumerable multitude, which seems to suggest much the same thing? It's because this specific numbering conveys to you and me that we have a God who knows us personally, that knows us personally, see. It's as though the Lord is saying, every single one of these saints I know intimately. That the Father in heaven who sits on the throne, he knows each and every one of his elect intimately. Each and every one of you. He's acquainted with all of your days and with all of your ways. He knows you each by name. Jesus goes even further. says he has even numbered the hairs of every one of your heads. Which is easier for some of you than others. It's fair. <laughs> but even so even so, knows us each by name. That's the significance of this numbered side of John's vision of the, of the church, that not only are we this vast, innumerable multitude, but we are also the personal people of God, that God knows you, knows us intimately. And so it's a, a profound picture to have that, that personal side to it. But that too can go too far if you only emphasize, if you only focus on that, and how so? I think this is a particular temptation for a church like ours. 
in close-knit Christian communities, you can be kind of hung up on the fact that, hey, it's like cheers, right? We know everybody by name. When sometimes you want to go, I'm not going to get you to start singing it, but you know, you know it already, and you'll have it stuck in your head the rest of the day. You're welcome. Uh, it, you can just emphasize and enjoy that personal side of it that you can start to become, frankly, kind of parochial and provincial. Where suddenly it's like the church has its bouncers, right? Like when you go to a nightclub and they say, okay, we can only have so many in here. Bible says 144,000. We're just going to say 144, okay? And, you know, if we're going to have that many in here, we can't accept any more until a few go out. If you get yourself on the waiting list, maybe we'll allow you in a little while, right? As though the church were a kind of exclusive country club. But we are not meant to be bouncers for the country club. When we focus and we emphasize that personal side of the church as we should, when we rejoice in that close-knit family aspect to the, to the church, we ought to do so, but not to the neglect of that innumerable global piece of the church as well. We're both of them at the same time, both global and personal, both innumerable and numbered. And when we lose that, we lose sight of the very mission of God. This came home to me in such a, a deep and impactful way when I was serving as a missionary overseas in Thailand. And I remember I was having a conversation with this young woman, Ari. And Ari was one of my best students. I taught English as a second language as, as part of my mission work. And Ari came and not only was her English great, but she was super inquisitive about Christianity. Now she had grown up like 99% of Thai people as a Buddhist. That was her frame of reference, but she was asking great questions. She was super curious about the Lord and, and about the faith. I remember one day we were talking about, there was this holiday, this Buddhist holiday in Thailand at the time, which they called J-Festival, J-Fest. And we were talking about what that was and what was the significance of the festival. And Ari, along with some other students, they were kind of chattering back and forth in Thai to try and explain what it was. And then finally she, she stammered, she said, um, it's a 10-day festival where you don't eat meat in order to forgive your sins. And I thought, that's a weird festival. But I was a vegetarian at the time, so I thought I can get on board with this, right? I said, well, what happens if you slip? But, you know, what happens if you manage to eat some meat accidentally? Or what if you aren't the perfect Buddhist that you're trying to be? And she's like, well, then karma gets you. Then karma gets you. This idea that if you aren't perfect, if you aren't always living up to what you should do and should be, then the universe is going to drop the other shoe, and maybe it's going to drop right on top of you. So we start talking about that a, a little bit more until finally Ari turns the question on me, and she says, well, what about you? How do you know that you're forgiven? Which is like, just give me that softball right there. <laughs> I shared with her about Jesus. I gave her some halting words about the gospel, but she gets this look on her face, just this kind of crestfallen look on her face. And she's like, I'm so jealous of you Christians because your God forgives. Because your God forgives. And I was kind of taken aback by this. Like, Ari, yes, our God forgives, but you don't have to be jealous. Like, you can believe, right? He came for you too. And Ari shakes her head and she gets this kind of weird look on her face and she says, well, 
I thought that only white people could be Christians. I don't know where she got that idea. It certainly wasn't from me. And it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. What that brought home to me is the fact that there are people in the world, not just in Thailand, but some of your neighbors, who think that the gospel is only for a particular subset of people. They hear maybe that it's just a numbered multitude that I'm not going to be one of those number. It's impingent on you and me as the people of God, as the church, to say, no, yes, we have a God who is very personal, but he is at the same time global. That this good news isn't just for a particular subset of the really good folks, right? In fact, Jesus says, I came not for the righteous, but for sinners of every race, of every tribe, of every language, of every nation. He came for you, see. That's what this vision that John sees of the church brings home to us. That when we have that bifocal vision, we're able to see the church in all of her global glory, but also in all of her profound personalness, both of that at the same time. We think, oh, it's a beautiful picture. If only it'll be that way someday. But it is that way now. See, when you arrive at your heavenly home, you will say, like St. John does, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Because, see, John sees this beautiful picture of the church. But what does he see at the center of it all? The lamb who is on his throne. And Martin Luther once said, Every seven-year-old kid could tell you what the church is. It's lambs who hear the voice of their shepherd. See, when you arrive in heaven on that day, you will see the lamb who is your shepherd. No different than it is today. And that lamb who is your shepherd will lead you beside still waters, will know your name, will call you each forward, will count your hairs, and wipe every tear from your eyes. That's our shepherd today, and that's our shepherd eternally, and what it means for us to be part of the church. Amen. May the peace of God that surpasses all understanding keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. We stand to confess our faith.